Death in Denmark. Brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. Please note, this episode contains disturbing details of real-life murder cases. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Stine Bolder. I am a crime reporter and I've been working on real crime cases for almost 20 years. In this podcast series, I want to tell you about some of the most spectacular murder cases we have experienced in Denmark. In each episode, I'll be joined by experts, some of whom were closely involved with the cases. This is Death in Denmark. In this first episode, we take a look at a case from 2013. A case that turned out to be more complicated than the police could have ever imagined. This is episode one, The Woman in the Container. Imagine that one of your closest friends disappears without a trace. You can't reach her. She's not home and she doesn't show up for any planned appointments. This was the situation when two friends couldn't get in contact with their 45-year-old friend in 2013. It's how the case of the woman in the container started. Although, sadly, this case did not have the happy ending that friends and police had hoped for. As you'll hear, the murder was committed in a horrible way that hasn't been seen neither before nor since. To find out more about the case in this episode, I've talked to former detective superintendent Ove Pedersen, crime scene investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen, forensic pathologist Hans-Peter Hogan, and lawyer Mette Gritsdag. Welcome to the podcast Death in Denmark, told by professionals who were closely involved with the case. The teachers are puzzled wondering where the mother is. She's usually never late to pick up her child from after-school care. She only has two days a week with her daughter, so it means a lot to her. Time passes, but the mother doesn't show up, and the daughter now has to look forward to a night without her mother. Her friends are also starting to wonder where she is. They cannot understand why she is not showing up to their planned appointments. After hours of waiting and without any answer, a close friend goes to her apartment, carefully unlocks the door and enters the apartment. Immediately, she sees and smells that something is not how it's supposed to be. The entire apartment is a big mess and the floors are slippery. When she enters the bathroom, a horrible chemical smell hits her. The missed appointments, lack of contact, and the condition of her apartment gave the police a reason to start an investigation into the woman's whereabouts. Looking into her phone signal was the first move in the investigation. They quickly found out that it had reached a cell tower close to Roskilde, a city about 30 kilometers outside of Copenhagen. Ove Pedersen was at that time the chief of homicide investigation within that area, and he was quickly put on the case. I sent two detectives to find out whatever there was anything out of the ordinary 
in that area, but there wasn't. So all we could do was wait. At some point, uh, I get a message telling me that uh, they found uh, further information. Her friends had told that she had uh, uh, a new boyfriend, uh, a man who she used to date back when they went uh, to high school together. The worst part about the new information was that her friends have told that they were worried uh, about the missing woman as they believed her new boyfriend was a little too hot-headed. They wanted uh, her to break up with him, uh, which she had intended uh, to do, but she had decided to meet up with him one last time. When the woman's friends had stopped by her apartment, they had noticed that several of her things were missing. There were also clear signs that someone had tried to start a fire. After this new information, the police investigation took off and the search for her boyfriend began. He wasn't easy to find at first, but after some investigation, they discovered that he had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Now the police knew where to find him. We also found out that he was married and he had three or four children. We didn't do anything at first, uh, but uh, waited until uh, they had uh, been in contact with the boyfriend. They found him at the mental hospital. He also told uh, the detectives that they had been together in a caravan located in a storage area not far from where her phone had pinged off. After being uh, told that the police have arrested him, I got a, a team together and uh, drove to the caravan storage area where he pointed out the caravan. We blocked uh, the area off so we uh, wouldn't destroy uh, any evidence. Ove Pedersen and his team contacted the crime scene investigators to investigate the caravan. At first sight, there were no signs that a crime had been committed, no signs of blood or any other evidence that could suggest a crime had been committed. The only thing of importance that they found was a woman's bag. The police were able to link the bag to the, to the missing woman. Uh, this wasn't uh, unusual, as uh, the suspect already had told us that he had been in the caravan together with the woman several times. Inside the bag uh, were tickets she had used uh, over the weekend uh, and the train tickets she used uh, in a weekend before that. The contents of the bag proved that she had been in uh, the caravan after the weekend, uh, or at least uh, it was an indication that the suspect was telling the truth about uh, that he had been in contact with the woman. We continued to question people close to the caravan area where we believe uh, she had been killed. However, uh, the area wasn't very populated and no one had seen and heard anything, so we didn't get any new information. Even though Ove Pedersen and his team had trouble finding evidence close to the caravan area, the judge ruled that there was enough evidence available to put him in jail and at least charged him with the woman's disappearance. While the suspect was being questioned, the police continued to gather more information about him to try and figure out more about who he was. 
During their investigation, they got in contact with a young man who told them that he, the previous Friday, was tricked into a nearby forest by the suspect himself. This was uh, very relevant uh, and made us uh, speculate uh, whatever the suspect had been in the forest to bury the woman's body or if he had simply just uh, left the body in the forest. Though the young man knew nothing of the woman's disappearance, he explained that a man had attacked him in the forest, sprayed black paint into his eyes and tried to hit him with a shovel several times. After attempting to escape in his car, the young man ended up running further into the forest to get away. This information gave the police a clear picture of the suspect, and further investigation showed that he had been admitted to the psychiatric hospital following the attack of the young man. Records showed that he had left the psychiatric hospital for a few days, presumably to meet up with the woman, and then admitted himself back into the hospital. The clearer picture began to form, and with further questioning, the police finally received an important clue. They found his car and started an investigation. The forensic team has uh, full access to the car, They needed to find out if he had moved the body in the car or not. The area where the car was found and the forest was examined by police dog. We continued to question the suspect and his friends, which uh, led to a friend telling us that the suspect had a container that was placed in a container spot not far from the caravan. We sent uh, two detectives to the area along with the witness uh, who believed that he was able to point out uh, which container belonged to the suspect. At a container yard in Northern Zealand, investigators slowly pull open the heavy door of an old rusty container, and a bit of light seeps in through the opening. The investigators let their eyes adjust to the darkness And after a few seconds, they notice that the container is stuffed with building materials and cardboard boxes with cans. Right inside the dark container, in the right-hand corner, one of the investigators sees a shapeless bundle on the floor. The bundle is wrapped in white plastic and tied together with green rope. The investigators carefully cut a small hole in the plastic to see what's inside. When they see the content of the bag, they are no longer in doubt. The police officers quickly moved away from the container. The chief of the homicide investigation, Ove Pedersen, and his team were called to the scene alongside a couple of crime scene investigators. Within a short time, the entire container yard was closed off with red and white police tape and the crime scene investigators could begin their work. The area leading up to the container was large, so the crime scene investigators had a lot of work in front of them, as the area had to be examined very carefully. The weather forecast said that it would be a rainy day, so the process of collecting evidence had to move fast to keep the rain from destroying it, and tents were set up to secure as much of the evidence as possible. 
Crime scene investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen explains how investigating a crime scene works. I was not personally involved in this case, but uh, our job as a crime scene investigator is to basically document and collect as much evidence as possible on the scene. All the information is given to the local investigators to help them to solve the case. In this case, we knew that the bottle was inside the container, which meant that someone must have placed it there, and thereby might have left evidence in the area around the container. Before the crime scene investigators arrived to a crime scene, the local police always close off the area around the scene. This is to make sure that you don't miss any tire tracks or shoe prints or other evidence that might have been left in the area. You always work your way in from the outside. If you discover any tire tracks or shoe prints in the ground or sand, you photograph it and make a cast of it to be able to compare it later on. Other possible evidence is also photographed and collected for further investigation. So, step by step, you work your way towards the crime scene, or, in this case, the bundle in the container. How do you examine the container and the bundle that was found? The first thing you do is that you document how everything is placed inside the container. We often need to move things around when investigating the scene, so we need to document the original placement of every item at the crime scene. Then you would need to open the bundle to determine the content and to make sure that the content is a human body. You need to be very careful when you open the bundle so you don't leave any fingerprints or destroy any evidence. This is why we always wear protecting clothing so we don't leave any trace of ourselves at the crime scene. So the police now knew that a woman had been found dead, wrapped in plastic and placed in a container. There had been an attempt to burn down her apartment, and her phone had pinged off a cell tower near a caravan. Police had imprisoned a suspect, but was he truly the one behind the woman's disappearance and death? Detective Superintendent Ove Pedersen followed the case closely. I stood in the end of the tent uh, along with uh, some uh, other detectives observing the crime scene investigators. We are present in order to collect everything that might need further investigations. In this case, we had to document the bundle itself, but also each layer it was wrapped in. After unwrapping the entire bundle, we were able to see that uh, it was a dead person. We could see that the legs and the face were covered in some uh, type of uh, cling wrap. Later in the process, a coroner came to the crime scene to examine the body. After careful uh, examination of the dead woman, we could see that her mouth was uh, covered uh, in something green, but it was difficult to see what it was. It covered her mouth and was very hard. It was terrible and shocking to see. When the content of the bundle turned out to be a dead woman, as suspected, a forensic pathologist was called to determine the type and cause of death. Type of death is categorized in four different ways and could be a natural death, an accident, suicide or homicide. Whereas the cause of death could be an illness, poisoning, old age 
or numerous types of injuries from weapons like knives or firearms. Forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hogan has examined more than 10,000 dead bodies and has, through his career, assisted the police in solving a lot of criminal cases. He explains how the mysterious bundle from the container was examined. The bundle has to be more or less completely or partly unwrapped to confirm that the contents of it are human remains. And the second step is to determine what caused the death. And the million-dollar question the police wants the forensic pathologist to answer is, when did the person die? These are the type of things that need to be determined, or at least we have to try to determine at the scene of the crime, as the police uh, would like to begin their further investigation as soon as possible. So they need information the earliest possible. Is that why you are summoned to help as fast as possible? It's one of the reasons we are summoned. We're also summoned to form a picture of the deceased at the setting and thereby form a picture of what has happened. In some cases, we determine that the death of a person is not linked to a crime or any wrongdoing. This is very important for the police as they don't have to work as intensely on solving the case and can plan their further investigations based on the circumstances. Now, I know this has been your job for many years, but for the rest of us, it seems very scary imagining you have to go to this container in which a body is presumably wrapped. Can you try and tell us about that feeling you have when you arrive at the scene? In the beginning, when I was a young doctor in the field of forensic medicine, there was a sort of excitement to it, but also uncertainty about what I was about to experience and see. I often thought about this uh, on the way to a scene. Gradually, you begin to form, well, I wouldn't call it a routine, but you begin to focus on the information you have been given. From that information, you begin to picture what type of scene you will be going to. This inhibits looking at the scene in a bigger picture. But in this case, there was something which surprised you, because as she was unwrapped, something green in her mouth and throat became visible. What was it? What I saw in both the face around the mouth and inside the mouth was a green solid material. We began carefully picking it out of the mouth of the deceased and began to examine it closer. Already there at the scene, we started to think that this material might have had something to do with the cause of death. And we wondered whether the person might have been suffocated by having something stuffed into her mouth. The body was taken to the Department of Forensic Science and to the room that is known as the homicide room within the department. The autopsy confirmed what we had already assumed, but the origin of the material came as a massive surprise to us. Her mouth and throat And even her esophagus had been filled with grout, the type that comes in a spray can that you use to grout windows. 
It had even gotten into her stomach. It was a type of foam that is sprayed into something and then expands. So she had had this foam sprayed into her mouth and throat, and thus she suffocated. It's not every day you see something like that. And was it important for you to determine whether this has occurred pre-mortem or post-mortem? First of all, we were not able to find anything else that could have been the cause of death. Secondly, her lungs were filled with an abnormal amount of air. We were also able to see marks on the mucosa of the throat, which indicated that something had definitely occurred when she was alive. And there were contusions which proved it had happened when she was alive. And it had gone all the way into her stomach. She had swallowed it. That's a terrible death. Uh, You could definitely say so. She was suffocated in grout. When something blocks uh, the air supply inside the persons, for instance, if a piece of cloth is stuffed into your throat, also known as gagging, uh, this is what you would call interior blockage. Something inside the body is being internally blocked. An exterior blockage occurs when someone is suffocated with a pillow or a hand that covers the mouth and nose. That is exterior blockage. So you can determine whether a person's injuries are caused by an exterior or interior blockage. We could see that there was an interior blockage, which means there was something inside her. This could have occurred if you were choking on a piece of meat, sausage, or some other type of food. In this case, we found grout in the throat. If there is an exterior blockage, like if you've been suffocated by a pillow and the pillow has been removed, then you can't see the pillow, but you can still see traces of it by looking at contusions on the upper and lower lip as they've been pushed up against the gums and front teeth. If there is an interior blockage, you will see what caused the blockage. And sometimes you can see small contusions in the throat where the material has been pressed into. How could you see that that was what had killed her? There were two reasons why we could see it. First of all, we couldn't find anything else that could be the cause of death. Second, we could see there were minor contusions in the throat, which was definitely caused by the grout being pressed hard against the mucosa. They occur when you're alive, not when you're dead. The results of the forensic examination were important for the investigators, and Detective Superintendent Ove Pedersen read the report with great interest. The coroner told us that the woman had grout uh, foam sprayed into her mouth while she was still alive. They were also able to tell us uh, that her arms had been uh, tied with zip ties, so uh, she wasn't able to do anything. So we had a body, a cause of death, type of death, and a suspect. Our job uh, was now to find out exactly what had happened. So we started to look at all the loose ends. We needed to know uh, more about these two people and how they had met. Had there been other people involved? Did he have uh, help or how did it all happen? 
We also have to find out uh, what he had uh, used to transport the body from the caravan to the container. The distance wasn't long, but it would still have been difficult to carry a dead body from the caravan to a car and into the container. At the crime scene in the caravan, the crime scene investigators had found several spray cans where one was wrapped in black tape. All cans contained grout foam, a sticky material that comes out of a long straw-like tip and expands and hardens within 20 minutes. The crime scene investigators took one photograph after another and constantly documented everything. Everything was examined to preserve DNA and fingerprints. It is very important that no evidence is lost during the process. Crime scene investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen explains. The can uh, that was wrapped in black tape was investigated. On the side of the can, investigators found fingerprints, and on the long straw-like tip, they found DNA from the dead woman. How would you look for fingerprints and DNA on a can? There are different ways to look for fingerprints depending on the surface they are left on. Different colors of powder can be used on flat surfaces, where the experts use a small feather brush to brush the powder on the area. The powder then will stick to the grease in the prints, and the more details you have in that print, the stronger the evidence is that the print is from the suspect. In other cases where the material might be different, the experts can use chemicals and light sources to search for fingerprints. A third option is to use a small glass chamber or cabinet where they evaporate glue into it. After a while, the glue attaches to the fingerprints. The best thing to do is to photograph it. If you have secured the fingerprint on a gelatin pad, which is a clear plastic sheet, with a sticky surface, you will be able to take a photo directly from the pad. You then have a measurement tool next to, so you can see the size of the original fingerprint. Other times you need to take a photo of the fingerprint on the surface where it has been found. In regards to DNA, you would take a drop of distilled water and two cotton buds, and then swipe the surface very carefully where you think there might be DNA. Afterwards, the cotton buds are placed in an evidence bag, and then sent off to the genetic lab where they hopefully can create a DNA profile from the swab. It is the middle of the night. Most people are fast asleep, but not the man. He's wide awake and he's checking the time in the caravan. It's about 3.30 a.m. and he quietly gets dressed so he won't wake up the 45-year-old woman. After a 20-minute drive, he arrives at the gas station. The man who works at the gas station knows him well, and even though he doesn't have any money on him, he's allowed credit for the goods he needs. With pastry, bread and a couple of energy drinks in his arms, he drives back to the caravan. Back to the woman he had sex with just a few hours prior, but whom he will later kill. The crime scene investigators continued their work to secure as much evidence as possible. Detective Superintendent Ove Pedersen and his team put the pieces together and among other things, they found out how the woman and the suspect knew each other. We started to get an idea of what had really happened. We didn't get any explanation from the suspect, 
but he later admitted to have sprayed the foam into her mouth by accident and that it was supposed to have been whipped cream. But we didn't uh, get uh, an explanation as uh, to why there was no whipped cream can in the caravan. Upon further investigation of the suspect's house, the police also found some of the woman's belongings, which had disappeared from her apartment. The police had now formed a better picture of the man they had arrested, and it became clear that the crime was no accident. The worst part was probably that it all seemed to have been planned. The forensic uh, examination from the caravan showed that uh, the can with foam that we found contained the woman's DNA at the tip and uh, the man's fingerprints were found on the sides of the can. The police now knew that the can had been used in the crime and tested different cans of whipped cream to see if there was any chance he could actually have mistaken the grout foam for whipped cream. But the huge difference of the cans supported their suspicion that he could not have mistaken them. During the autopsy, all the foam that had been sprayed into the woman had been collected to see how much foam was actually sprayed into the woman. We could then uh, determine how long it had taken to uh, spray the foam into the woman. It could not have uh, happened in a split second. It actually took quite a while to, to get the same amount. This was another thing that confirmed our suspicions that it had not happened by accident. The comparison of various cans of whipped cream and the findings from the autopsy left the police in no doubt. They now knew that the can was the murder weapon. And after months of investigation, the investigators finally had an idea of how and where the murder had taken place. The suspect had taken the 45-year-old woman to his caravan. There he had tied her up with zip ties around her hands and during what he explained was a sex game, he had sprayed grout foam down her throat. The police found his explanation about mistaking the grout canister for whipped cream unlikely. By the time the case got to court, it was the end of 2014. The man pleaded guilty on every count, but still claimed it was manslaughter, as he has just mistaken the cans. In all murder cases like this one, the defendant will be submitted to a psychological evaluation to help determine the sentence. Former prosecutor, now defense attorney, Medigrit Stey, has led many criminal cases in court. During a psychological evaluation, the accused is taken to a session with a psychiatrist and a psychologist at the Forensic Psychiatric Department. This is done to determine whether the accused is mentally fit to receive an ordinary prison sentence or should rather have a treatment sentence. What does a psychological evaluation show? What factors are they looking at? Well, the doctors and the psychologists, they can assess a person's traits and determine whether the accused is normal or not more normal, so to speak. If they find that the accused is mentally unstable, the accused will be declared unfit to receive a regular prison sentence. And instead, the accused will get a different type of sentence if found guilty. What importance uh, does this evaluation have for a criminal case? 
The reason why a psychological evaluation is important to a criminal case is because it is necessary to determine if the accused is fit for a regular prison sentence or if he or she should receive a different type of sentence. If the accused has a mental disorder that makes him or her mentally unfit for prison, an alternative type of sanction would be given instead. What other kinds of uh, sanctions are there apart from prison? If a psychological evaluation finds that the accused is insane, I know it doesn't sound appropriate to say insane, but that is the term that we use in the Danish criminal code, then the accused has to receive a sentence which includes some kind of psychiatric or psychological treatment or consulting. There are different types of sanctions. One is that the accused is hospitalized for as long as the doctors find it necessary to prevent him or her from committing new crimes. In other cases, usually the more aggravating cases, where the accused is found guilty of, for instance, violence, rape or murder, the court can decide that the accused has to be placed in a psychiatric facility for an indefinite period of time. So in these cases, you don't know when you're going to get out again. And finally, there is a type of custodial sentence where the psychiatrists have evaluated that the accused isn't insane, but still he has some sort of mental breach that makes him extremely dangerous. In these cases, society can't take the risk that the accused will be released from prison after serving a certain amount of years, and therefore he will receive a custodial sentence instead, a sentence without time limit to be served in a prison or in some kind of secured institution. So in this case, he ends up being declared fit for a regular sentence, so to say. What does that mean? This means that the perpetrator in this case is given an ordinary prison sentence. If he had been mentally ill, he would most likely have been given a placement sentence. In particular disturbing cases, psychological evaluations are often necessary because of the nature of the criminal act being so brutal or cynic that something is bound to be mentally wrong. That is why it's necessary for the accused to go through a psychological evaluation in certain cases. So a normal sentence either has a specific duration or it's for life. But how much time should be given in this specific case? Well, it is a murder case, so the rule of thumb is 12 years in prison. However, in some cases there might be mitigating circumstances. For instance, if you find your wife in bed with another man and kill him spontaneously. On the other hand, there might also be aggravating circumstances. For instance, if a murder is particularly violent or ruthless. This might lead to a higher sentence than the standard of 12 years. What was the result of the case? Well, the prosecutor in this case asked for 14 years in prison, but it ended up being the standard 12 years in spite of the aggravating circumstances. I've read that the family thinks the sentence was too low and he didn't receive a punishment for the violence against the young man in the forest or the fraud. How is it possible not to get anything for that? You could say that he actually only get 12 years for the murder. If the accused is charged with multiple crimes, he gets a discount, so to speak. That is the way the Danish legal system works. Let me give you an example. If you commit a murder, you will get 12 years in prison. If you commit a violent assault, you will get, let's say, six months. If these two charges are tried together during the same trial... You will not get 12 and a half year, but you will only get 12 years. 
So actually, you get the lesser charges for free. The sentence is not prolonged because of the lesser charges. This might seem unfair, but that is how the legal system works in Denmark. There is, so to speak, a two-for-one discount. What do you think? Well, in my professional opinion, 12 years is a very long sentence. But if you are somehow related to the victim, then 12 years will never be enough for a murder. And I understand how it must seem quite unfair that no additional sentence is added in those cases that involves multiple charges, as for instance murder and violence. It always depends on what the perspective is. Do we look at it from a professional point of view or from the ones that have suffered a great loss? The case came to an end on the 3rd of December 2014. The person accused of the crime was found guilty and convicted for his actions. None of the parties involved will ever forget the brutal way in which the woman was murdered. Thanks to Detective Superintendent Ove Pedersen, Forensic Pathologist Hans-Peter Hogan, Lawyer Mette Gritsdage, and Crime Scene Investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen for your stories. Death in Denmark is produced by Bauer Media and True Crime Agency and has been brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. If you enjoyed this story, please tell your friends and rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And get your true crime fix in Crime Monthly Magazine, out in shops now. Next week, The Missing Family. <laughs>